Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time to wake up with Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley. Jeremy, we have some extra special guests with us today. Absolutely. Looking forward to this one. Ah, they've joined us before. And for those of us who have been following us, they joined us on episode six. And the positive response was overwhelming. Both of these ladies have been AANA presidents. They've chaired various task forces, committees, councils. The list is endless, but we have some very exciting news to share with you today. We have developed a huge list of topics thanks to these ladies, and this will be the first in a list that will become a historical series about the profession of nurse anesthesia. I always ask the students at the state meetings, do you know who is sitting beside of you? Because a lot of times these people have a long history, have done lots of things within our profession, and these young students coming in don't even have a clue who it is sitting beside of you. Well, this past NCANA meeting, did they get their eyes opened up? We do a panel discussion called Lessons in Leadership, and we had these two ladies on the stage, and the, the students in the room were mesmerized. I don't even think any of them checked their telephone. Did yeah, you see That's anybody? amazing. I didn't see them do it. But, I uh, know, right? <laughs> so today, our podcast is an excellent way to revisit our past as we remember it and learn from it, all the while using the technology of today podcast. This is exciting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jeremy, I'll let you introduce these ladies. Great. Well, we are honored today to have Sandy Ouellette and Nancy Marie to talk to us about the history of nurse anesthesia. Both of them, as Sharon said, I'm in the room with three past presidents of the ANA. Today's your lucky day. Today is my lucky day. Every day is my lucky day, Sharon. But we're looking forward to what they have to say about where nurse anesthesia has been. And hopefully, as we build up on this series, where we're going. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you guys get started. So what's our topic for today, ladies? We're anxiously awaiting. The topic today is the problem with the ACTS statement or the anesthesia care team statement. It didn't take very long for the ASA to get on their mission relative to nurse anesthesia. The ASA, or the American Society of Anesthesiologists, was founded in 1935, and it only took until 1937 for them to present a master plan to the American College of Surgeons for eventually elimination of nurse anesthetists. Now, the AANA was founded in 1931, and so they were four years behind us. Okay. Uh, that's correct, but uh, before we get back to our major topic, they celebrated a big 75th or 100th anniversary or something in 2005, 
we celebrated our 75th in 2006, so they had to celebrate theirs in 2005. It had to be bigger. However, that's when the New York Society of Anesthesiologists was formed. The ASA was not formed until after us. You're absolutely correct. It was about four okay. years after us. So they rewrote history just a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, they did. You know what happened? <laughs> they were supposed to have their meeting in New Orleans, and Katrina hit and wiped it out. So at the last minute, they had to move everything to Atlanta. Uh -huh. It was uh -huh. a real mess for them, unfortunately. Well, you know, see, whatever. that should have been a sign, shouldn't <laughs> it? I would think so. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> All right, ladies. All so right. So uh, as Nancy said, in 1937, there was a master plan for eventual elimination of nurse anesthetists presented to the American College of Surgeons. And the plan was to achieve the following. They were going to impress upon state medical societies and the American Medical Association the importance of a medical specialist in anesthesia. And uh, they were going to educate the public as to the benefits derived from physician anesthesia. They were going to provide better training of students of medicine and interns. And uh, they agreed that no legislation, this is interesting, they agreed that no legislation would be made to force CRNAs from the field until anesthesiologists could take over in a confident way. And that was the very beginning. And as we're going to show you as we move through this, that has never changed, not one bit. Now, let me ask you a question. Our numbers have always, until just recently, we have always outnumbered them by about four to one. Isn't that right? Whenever you go back looking at history? Not really, Sharon. We did for a long time. Mm -hmm. Probably back in those days, I would even hate to guess how many nurse anesthetists there was for one anesthesiologist. And back in those days, a lot of the physicians administering anesthesia had no specialty training in anesthesia. They were general practitioners and so on. In terms of them catching up was in the 80s. Oh, okay. uh, half of the anesthesiologists that have worked right now were educated in the 80s. They really started building up these residency programs. And so the last I have heard, there are about 50,000 nurse anesthetists and about 50,000 anesthesiologists. Mm -hmm. So it's just about, about the same um, numbers. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, they are diversified into many other areas in terms of research and medical directing, mm -hmm. which is their gold. As right. we'll move along, you'll see if they can't replace us, they think every anesthetic should be medically directed by them. Also, in 1962, a notable quote by a Boston anesthesiologist, Dr. Beecher, which was in the American Journal of Medical Association, had an impact on the anesthesia care team. And, you know, Nancy, that's very interesting because I have read that so many times. And I just decided this week I was going to go and see if I could find that 1962 article in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So I went to the library at Wake Forest University Medical School. And guess what? I found it. I've got the copy right here. Now, the interesting thing is when I looked at that publication, I still almost missed this article because it was not listed by the title of the article. It was listed as special communication when the article is really entitled Trends in Anesthesia. But it was by a Dr. Beecher, a well-known anesthesiologist in the day at Harvard Mass General Hospital in, in Boston. And he goes into many, many things in this article, but one is about nurse anesthetists. And, and I won't share with you just what he said. 
and I'm quoting this, if I may speak rather bluntly, it has always seemed to me that more nonsense has been spoken on the subject of the nurse synesthesis than on most in anesthesia. I don't know not what the final solution will be, but I think that eventually the nurse synesthetist may occupy a position not unlike that of a skilled operating room nurse carrying out certain activities, limited activities under close supervision. Full responsibility in these areas requires a thorough medical background. Nevertheless, to me, it has always seemed foolish to think of throwing out the nurse synesthetist, as has been so strenuously attempted by some, before we have physician replacements ready. Had that been done, the only possibility in thousands of cases would have been to supplant her by the family physician, the occasional anesthetist, an undesirable prospect. However, I'm glad to record that the picture of the nurse anesthetist is waning and that of the physician anesthetist is waxing. And that was in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association in 1962. So nothing's really changed. Yeah. Yeah. 1962 <laughs> to 2019, it all stays the same. Well, I don't know. I don't think we're uh, waning at all. If I look at my email inbox to all the positions that are available for us right now. I just mean the opinions from the, the ASA. I mean, maybe we can see if this is a public sourced article and we'll tag it up in our show notes. Mm, there you go. Well, in 1964, the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists did establish a liaison committee. And this committee met twice a year. And the goals for this committee were expressed by AANA Education Director Florence McQuillan. And in this dialogue, she supports that this committee should not in any way interfere with the progress of nurse anesthesia education should not participate in curbing of anti-nurse anesthesia activity. And then after a meeting, meeting for three years, which means they had six meetings, a joint statement was published from the AANA and the ASA. Yeah, and I, I think it's important if you're looking at 64 and 1962, you have to sort of put yourself in the climate at that time. And a very noted anesthesiologist, also a Dr. Drips, had said. Uh, <laughs> that, now that's Drips, interesting. Yeah, Dr. Drips. Dr. Drips, big name back then. Drips. Uh, in, in 1962, Dropping. he said, there is not enough physician specialists. So they were beginning to recognize that to administer all the anesthetics in this country. It is unlikely that they will ever be. Who then will be available? How will they be trained? and how supervised and controlled. The term nurse anesthetist and nurse technician arise strong emotional reactions in some quarters. Perhaps it's well to recognize this and try to solve it. ASA urge other organizations in this country to come under its supervision as axillaries. This is not surrender of principle. It is recognition of an obligation overdue. We shall give up little and the patient gain much in this cooperative approach to personnel problems. And again, that was the uh, well-known Dr. Drips in 1962. So as you said, Florence McQuillan, she was the first executive director. Did they, uh, they call her 
slow. They called her the Iron Lady. Ooh. Oh, she was the Iron Lady. She was very, very autocratic, and she just did everything. For example, if you were on the board back then of directors of the INA, she would write your report, and your only role was to read that report at the appropriate time, uh, which she directed. Now, was she a CRNA? She was a CRNA, okay. and she was the first. Uh, and, and back then, we needed people like her. We certainly did. And so, interesting, I was trying to think, well, what made Florence McQuillan really eager to bring these groups together? And uh, I really looked at the second point, Nancy, that you made to sort of softened the anti-nurse anesthesia activity by the American Society of Anesthesiologists. And again, going through the Sandy Olette archives at 183 Heatherton Way in Winston-Salem, <laughs> I stumbled this week when we were talking uh, to students about this, a letter that someone had given me from ANA former president, Mary Alice Costello. And this was in a presentation she gave to the members in August of 1964. And I want to read a few quotes to that because I think it tells us where we were at that time. It is paradoxical that their numbers, that would be CRNAs, have increased in spite of almost constant and often militant efforts to eliminate nurse anesthetists. In the 1930s, one surgical group passed a resolution that no legislation should be forced until physician anesthetists can take over the work. End of quote. In another, in 1962, a leading hospital journal published an article with the statement made, quote, it is distressing that one of the few avenues for advancement previously open to nurses is being closed, end of quote. And then another was heard to say, this was a, uh, a high-ranking hospital official, quote, how do you like working for a dying profession? And so in a medical journal, again, Mary Alice pointed out the quote that the nurse anesthetist, although she should eventually be abolished as an independent worker, will continue to be necessary for many years to come. The organization representing the specialty of anesthesiology should recognize this and should seek to arrange for the recruitment and regulation of nurse anesthetists as long as they continue to be needed. So um, even back then in the 60s, they were recognizing this is what we want to do, but we really can't do it. So the thing is, if we can't do it all, then how can we control this group of people? So that brings us up to 1966, Nancy. In 1966, the AANA Public Relations Committee and the AANA executive staff met with the ASA leaders. And the reason for the meeting was to explore ways the association could cooperate and provide better anesthesia services to patients. This was followed in 1968 when the AANA News Bulletin and the ASA Newsletter published a joint statement concerning qualifications of individuals administering anesthesia. In the statement was the first official mention of the anesthesia care team. Wow, so it goes all the way back to 1968, Nancy. That's interesting. I don't, I don't think I realized it went back that far. Were you even born, Jeremy? I was not sure. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Shortly as, thereafter. <laughs> <laughs> and as Nancy was saying, 
the group had met and they came out with a, a statement that was fairly, fairly positive together. And some of it, and this could be something that was established over about three years, but one quote at that time, it is therefore highly desirable that continued close liaison be developed between these organizations, and that would be both ANA and ASA, for enhancing the quality and quantity of available personnel, for advancing educational opportunities, for determining ethical relationships, and for the overall improvement of patient care. A joint statement, and they were putting the patient and the patient first, and recognizing the role in that joint statement that both parties would play in safe anesthesia care. So how long did that last? Not long. <laughs> yeah, not long. I was going to say that sounded pretty positive, yeah, and then good. we're still at the same place today. Yeah. So to answer your question, Sharon, in 1974, the ASA had appointed an ad hoc anesthesia care team committee. And when that was done, then all hell broke loose. So it has never been back since then. So whenever we had the joint statement, did they actually call it the anesthesia care team? I don't remember it saying a team. Okay. It, it was just they were recognizing the qualifications that both providers brought to the operating room and was not demeaning of the role that either played mm -hmm. and certainly didn't at that point say that we would be apart until they could do it all or that they thought for quality they should medically direct it at all. No, because ANA would have nev never, even in those days, gone along with anything that was not broader, recognizing in a very positive way the relationship of, of both. So we're up to 1974, and that's when the gauntlet's been thrown That's down. right, and it started with the ASA appointing an ad hoc anesthesia care team committee. And the next year, the representatives of ASA formally challenged AANA's right to accredit nurse anesthesia programs. And that's a whole different topic that we could begin, but that led to the movement of our programs in terms of accreditation and certification from the house within AANA to what eventually became autonomous credentialing councils, but I don't think that we need to go into that at this point. Do you, Nancy, uh, for what we're focusing on now? So in uh, 1974, by 1977, 78, the ASA then released a unilateral, the key word is unilateral statement on differences between anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists. They sent this to the finance committee and used it widely from state to state at the state legislative level. And then that same year, there was a unilateral statement developed, which said in part, I don't have the entire statement with me today, but the provision of anesthesia by non-physicians should be under the direction of physicians responsible for anesthesia. And so um, they were beginning to put their foot in the door at that point that they would be all in control or administering the anesthesia themselves. So from 72 to 1977, so within that five-year span, it sounds like they just changed direction from us working together to wanting to be in charge. I don't believe they ever intended 
to have a relationship where both would be at the table and bring equal worth. It's always been a top-down mm -hmm. relationship because we have to understand that they view anesthesiology as a practice of medicine. So everyone involved in that area should be under a well-trained specialist in physician anesthesia. That certainly lose sight of an early legal challenge back in uh, 1917, yeah. Frank versus South. And that is unprecedented. It's never been turned around. And what it says is that just because there is an activity that's recognized as part of one practice act, be it medicine, it should not preclude it from being in another practice act, which would be nursing or perhaps pharmacy or perhaps dentistry. And so that set the stage that the administration of anesthesia by nurses is a practice of nursing. Mm -hmm. And when they say in the most recent statement that was released, anesthesia care team statement 2018, the first sentence is anesthesiology is a practice of medicine. And it goes on from there. Well, that's a non, it's a non-starter. You can't have any confrontation no. because nurses administer anesthesia under the Nurse Practice Act. We are not physician extenders. And when that is put in your face, no way you can move beyond that. So, um, Nancy, you were going to say something. One thing to point out here, too, I think, is that in reality, I don't think the American Society of Anesthesiology ever, ever accepted the anesthesia care team. And it appears when you look back at some of the things that happened at that point in time, that there was even some point of a division within the ASA that was related to the anesthesia care team. And one of the outcomes of that was the establishment of the Anesthesia Care Team Society, which people don't think about very much anymore, but that was established or founded by an anesthesiologist in North Carolina. Oh, wait, was a we need some more, because I've never heard of this, and I thought you two had indoctrinated me fairly well. Yeah, sure, and I thought you knew everything. And uh, it well, was, I do. That's what I tell my husband. It was still in place. I'm not really sure how many members they ever had. But it was open to membership to both CRNAs and anesthesiologists. But I don't remember CRNAs having a lot of ability to be on boards and that kind of thing. I may be wrong about that. But that was in place until till I was on the board of directors of the AANA. So it was dissolved around somewhere between 92, 93, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. But so you can see the academics mm -hmm. kind of, if you look at the board of directors of ASA, most of the time they are the academic anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so there was a kind of a friction between the town and the gown. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that was also an issue that was playing out within the ASA also. And I think, Nancy, what you mentioned, I really didn't know much about it because I was in uh, academia at Wake Forest University. And obviously, it was not something that the ANA was promoting in terms of being a part of this, because until you mentioned it, I never knew about it. So it wasn't something on the front burner by either organization. All right. So 1982, the revised statement, again, of the anesthesia care team 
really pictured the nurse anesthetist at the technician level and stated the team. Now, this was what was really important. I was coming on the ANA board of directors at that time. And it said in this revised statement that the team would only be in effect until all anesthetics could be administered by a physician. And then the ASA refused to have their members meet with the ANA liaison committee until the ANA would accept that statement. Well, how can we accept a statement that really clearly says it is our demise? You know, that's crazy. And so it was something that the, uh, the ANA could not accept. And so we didn't meet. And we, we didn't meet meaningful for many, many years, if we ever have since then. But they sold this to their members, not that the AINA would not accept the statement, couldn't accept it, which is very reasonable. But they said we couldn't accept, we would not accept the concept. And at that time, you know, most of our members were employed by hospitals or physician groups. Of course, the ANA has never, ever tried to tell people where they should work and, and under what conditions. So we didn't try to annihilate the concept. It was just the statement. Hey, Sandy, let me ask you something. Sharon kind of alluded to this a little bit ago, but it sounds like between 72 and 77, things really went awry. Mm-hmm. Any idea why that happened during that time period? Power and control. Power and control. I teach the students all the time. Anesthesia, the real driving factor has been power control and economics. And that is the real wedge between us. And this statement is the thing that will prevent us from ever having any meaningful dialogue until there can be, again, a joint statement that both parties feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Could it also be the players? You know, usually the players are uh, part of it, too. So power, players, and control. Yeah, I mean, I agree. You know, you just never know who's sitting at the table. I just wondered if there was Mm -hmm. some impetus to kind of push that over that five-year period. Well, it was very interesting, too. You know, as Nancy mentioned a minute ago, the ASA ANA Liaison Committee started back in 1964 under Florence McQuillan. We'd meet twice a year. Now, Dick and I, my husband is Richard Woodlad. He's a past president of ANA times two. We were both as young, young God, remember back when, young nurse anesthetists uh, on this liaison committee back in 1982 and 1983. So we were on one of the last groups that met as a liaison committee. And I can remember then it didn't seem to be a lot of interest there, but at any rate, interest we did meet. from the ASA. Yeah. Is that what yeah, you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, I remember vividly we would start the meeting at eight o'clock and by nine o'clock they were looking at their plane tickets, you know, like how quick can we get out of here? But maybe I'm being overcritical, but that seems to be a memory. So and, any, you were in that room. So give us some real inside scoop besides the play tickets too. I mean, do you remember any of the topics or if there was true engagement or just? No, um, a good question. And certainly I, I don't remember from the standpoint that I was a young, well, fairly young nurse anesthetist. I graduated in 1969. 
but I'm sure there are minutes, you know, it, it would be very interesting to go back to the a and archives and review some of those minutes to see what topics were discussed. Well, clearly they weren't memorable topics or it <laughs> was just right. right out. That's of right. I know uh-huh. you've got a terrific memory. <laughs> One of the things that, going back to what you ask, that you have to think about from a historical standpoint is that there really were not a large number of anesthesiologists until after World War II. And so during this period of time, if you look at it, it started out them wanting us to accept the anesthesia care team concept. But then they moved to, they want us to say that anesthesia is the practice of medicine. So now we're going back to what they wanted in 1917. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they always originally wanted was, and I think is for it to be officially declared the practice of medicine. And during this period was when there was a real increase in the number of anesthesia residency programs, and there were more and more anesthesiologists coming out into the healthcare field. And so from my looking at it, if I were looking at it from the other side of the fence, I would say, okay, this is a good time to let's switch gears. Now it's going to be not the concept of the act statement, but we're going to move again to another level and say, now it is the practice of medicine. Mm-hmm. So know. they they weren't getting any traction with the ACT uh, statement. Yeah. And they were getting a larger body of support in their own field of medicine. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. that does. Yeah, and so by 19... 19- 99 with some further revisions of the again unilaterally developed statement they really removed that very troublesome piece about we were a stopgap measure until every anesthetic could be personally delivered by an anesthesiologist but in its place in a very subtle way it went on to say in part that every anesthetic should be personally delivered by an anesthesiologist or under the medical direction of an anesthesiologist. Now, since that time, from 1995 on up to today, there have been a few informal meetings with leadership of the AANA, and then one point, formal, a more formal leadership. Nancy, you remember in 2005, representatives from both groups entered into a mediation process that was facilitated by a company called ThoughtBridge, to help improve communication between the two organizations. No improvement was forthcoming. And so that was very, very short-lived. And uh, Right, that was under Tom McKibben. That was under Tom McKibben. You're right about that. So here, you know, Nancy brings us up to today in that most recent revision in October at the ASA meeting of the anesthesia care team statement. And there's points in that statement that are very, very troubling. And... Um, I've sort of mentioned one area, and I've, I've got a lot highlighted, if you can look at my paper here, but certainly that first sentence in the ni- uh, 2018 statement that anesthesiology is a practice of medicine excludes every nurse anesthetist that's practicing as a professional in this particular field. And then when they go on and they begin to define folks whether it be anesthetist, nurse anesthetist, anesthesiologist, and on and on and go. I find it very interesting here 
that they speak of the nurse nest as, as a registered nurse who has satisfactorily completed an accredited nurse anesthesia training program and certifying exam. And when they define the anesthesiologist assistant, they refer to this person as a health professional who has satisfactorily completed an accredited anesthesiologist. So it gets back to the old fight, the nurse. This is a nurse case versus an anesthesia assistant who they recognize in this so statement. they're a professional and we're not. Well, they didn't say we were a professional. They no. said we were a registered Error nurse. Of but correct me if I'm that's wrong. That's right. That's right. And then it goes this. on and implies in terms of our students that since they're not fully qualified, they really should be under very, very stringent supervision. And uh, that has not been a problem that I know of right now in all of our 1,800 clinical sites, but it certainly had the potential to be if people had grabbed hold of this at the local level and gone on to fight this. So, yeah, it's uh, it goes on and on. And so history just continually repeats, repeats itself, itself, I believe. Well, I, um, I think just, the bottom line in a lot of this is the power, the control, and finances, just like you said, Sandy, I think. We repeatedly see that throughout this history and this ongoing dialogue between the ASA and the ANA. And even in the anesthesiologist assistants, as you just said, calling them professionals. But what I was going to say earlier was, from my understanding, they don't even have to have a medical background to be an AA. You know, I, I as a business major, could go back and be an AA, mm -hmm. which is kind of troubling to me. Yep. But uh, anyway, I know, you, Sandy, you've got a lot more to say here. Yeah. Just some concluding points, and Nancy and Sharon jump in whenever you think it's appropriate. But I think one of the things that the ANA has believed, or certainly certain members have believed, about this statement, including the late and great Aragon, who was a wonderful icon for our profession, we believe that that statement demeans CRNAs, their education, knowledge, and skills. It is restricted to practice. It inhibits productivity of both providers. It is a wasteful model for anesthesia personnel, and it is a very, very costly model. So this has been the things that the ANA has fussed about. Now, um, it's my strong feeling that there will never, ever be positive dialogue, peace, and collaboration with any group that calls for the extinction or medical control of another provider that is recognized as having the right to practice their skills, you know, and we're not physician extenders. I was talking to the students about this at Wake Forest, and one um, young man asked me, do you think we'll ever see peace? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, to me, it's much like Palestine and Israel. And I thought, I've never thought about it like mm -hmm. that, but you can never get to a resolution with countries like this when one country is calling for the utter destruction of another. And this is kind of where we are, you know, with this statement. We're the, the Palestine and Israel group, and we know that we have the right to practice as a nurse a hundred years, over a hundred years. It's never been overturned. And then looking at Mary Alice Costello's speech again, she emphasized not the anesthesia care team, but the OR team. 
And uh, if I can quote her, she said, we can and we must give more to our professional association. And I cannot shout that high enough. We need to occasionally remind ourselves of an abiding truth that all of us are constantly holding life itself in our hands. In most jobs, a wrong decision can mean a loss of money. In ours, it can mean a loss of life or health. Our daily companion is danger even in the most routine surgeries. Our responsibility is great, and it entails not only making and carrying out the right decisions ourselves, but cooperating at every step with the operating room team, the nurses, the surgeons, the anesthesiologists, if they are present, and we, with each other. There is no place, Mary Alice said, in the operating room for personal malice or resentment. There is only a place for perfectly timed and fully impersonal meshing of all talents. So I would like to see us focus on the operating room team in our busy day-to-day -day practice and not the anesthesia care team. Right. Whenever you guys came in, I was showing you my book from my class that I'm reading right now. And it talks about a team. And in a team, everybody is valued. And what I hear you saying is this is a hierarchical, did I say that right, team <laughs> where somebody is put in charge of everybody else. And honestly, that's not really what the true definition of a team is. Yeah. And if I could just add one more thing by Ira Gunn, who really, and there is a book that can be purchased from the A&A bookstore on her writings and her sayings. And she was clearly an icon that did a whole lot to get us to the favored place we are uh, at today as an organization. But I found a statement by her in which she said, the public is best served when professionals are autonomous mm -hmm. in their decision-making, facilitating cooperation and collaboration and consensus in the development of a patient-centered healthcare plan. Professional dominance and control by one profession over the other will reduce accessibility, increase costs, and will not improve quality at all. And I don't think anybody could have said it better right. than Ira. Well, she said everything better. <laughs> Nancy, have you got some concluding comments that you'd like to offer up for us? Well, first of all, I want to say one thing just to sort of not make this seem so one-sided in a way. There was one thing that did happen in 1992, 93, that kind of made things worse as far as our relationship with ASA and the anesthesia care team. Prior to that time, the anesthesia care team made 120% uh, for mm -hmm. when they were supervising four cases. Mm -hmm. And we took the position with the federal government and it won that no one should be paid more than 100%. And so that siding in that area, of course, took money away from the anesthesia care team, which also participated in fueling the fire between ASA and AANA, even though within the ASA, they themselves didn't like the anesthesia care team to be making more than they were making if they weren't in the oh, anesthesia care team. But sense. yet, you know, they were in the same, they're all anesthesiologists, so they 
stuck together, just like I would hope we as CRNAs would stick stick together. together. Like everyone else, I I would like to see this whole issue just be put aside and that we really would work as a team where everybody puts forth their expertise and plays a role in decision making as a team should do. But again, I don't know if that will ever, ever happen because, you know, there's so many areas of friction between the two organizations, not just anesthesia being the the practice of medicine, but there's the whole supervision issue, medical direction issue, the ratio issue, and so forth and so on. But it would be nice. But I I think the one thing to say, though, is for the most part, for the most part, mm-hmm. on the grassroots level, That's we exactly. tend to get along. We, and, we do, and, and none of this is ever brought to the bedside. Or, no, you and know, nor I, should it be. No, absolutely. Patients are safe. We come together. We work well together. And then I used to tell the anesthesiologist lobbyist here in North Carolina, it's like that cartoon where they go in, they punch the clock, and they fight what you and the cartoon, and then they'd come out, and then they're friends again. And that's kind of the same thing. You go into the operating room space, you go into take care of the patients, and you do what you're supposed to do. You work well together as a team, and it's just whenever we walk outside of that door that it's a problem. And I'm, I'm very glad that both of you brought this up, and it reminds me of a, another opinion of the Ira Gunn individual and she said you know when you look back on history we're both better because we both exist and the patients are better because we exist oh i like that and also you know i think i think that was the main thing she said there and like you said we all have friends that are anesthesiologists and nurse anesthetists and i never ever recalled this being a problem in the operating room ever in my 50 years Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's just like I said with the anesthesiologist lobbyist, I used to tell him all the time, we're going to go in here and we're going to fight. I said, when we come out, I'm still going to love you. So that's the way it should be. That is the way it should be. Well, guys, this has been wonderful. I think I've learned a lot in this room today to know more about uh, CRNAs and the ongoing dialogue here between the ASA and ANA. And we sure do appreciate you, Sandy, and you, Nancy, being here with all your wealth of knowledge and look forward to this continuing. We're going to have a series of these podcasts detailing what has gone on, and we look forward to that. So Now, you can go home to your wife, Sarah, the CRNA, and teach her everything you've learned today, Jeremy. Mm, I will try, but she probably won't want to listen to that. um, well listen we thank everyone for listening and with that this is Sharon Pierce and Jeremy Stanley we'll talk to you soon thank you like what you're hearing be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts Google Play and everywhere else that streams podcasts